eventually I, I had an opportunity to uh, start to go to, to cannabis meetings, you know, conventions and things and uh, to promote my law practice and to learn about the industry. And I remember the, one of the first meetings I went to, people were talking about CBD. I didn't have a clue what it was. I had to Google it sitting right there in the meeting. And that's when I learned that there was more than one thing in the plant. You know, I grew up thinking, maybe like a lot of people, that marijuana was a drug like Valium or Percocet. Then you learn that, you no, know, this is a plant that has incredibly diverse biochemistry and it makes all kinds of things that do different things to a, a, a receptor system that the body evolved. And it, it was to me when I when I figured that out, it was it was a scientific turn on like you couldn't believe this was a big turning point for me in the industry. As I started meeting people, everybody has a story about how um, CBD cured something they had. You know, I had a brain injury. I had Crohn's. I had cr problems with my sleep. I had chronic pain. I, and I, I believed all these people because they were so sincere and they're telling me their firsthand account. But as a scientist, I started to get skeptical. I thought, this doesn't sound credible. It sounds like snake oil. Is, is it just the best placebo in history? And so while I was fascinated by the science of what, what I was beginning to learn, I had a hard time reconciling that with all these anecdotes until I heard of this physician named Ethan Russo who had a theory called chronic endocannabinoid deficiency. You know, our body makes our own cannabinoids. Uh, we, that's why we have an endocannabinoid system. Because of the distribution of the endocannabinoid system, it's all through the body, it's in the nervous system, it's in the peripheral nervous system, it's in the immune system, the different parts of the immune system, it's through the digestive system. It may have a role in something called homeostasis, which is regulating the steady state, the, the good conditions, whether it's good immune function, good emotional state, all kinds of things. If that is regulated by the endocannabinoids that our bodies make, and then we start not making enough of those endocannabinoids. You think about people with a hormone deficiency, you know, everybody gets to a certain age where the men aren't making as much testosterone as they used to, the women aren't making as much estrogen, your body starts to change. So Ethan's explanation for why one thing like CBD could have such a multiplicity of effects was the, the endocannabinoid system regulates homo, homeostasis by perceiving the endocannabinoids that we make, just like some other hormone or something. And if you're deficient for it, CBD is a supplement. And then whatever was getting messed up by that deficiency gets fixed. And, and when, I, when I read that, suddenly I could recognize as a molecular biologist the viability of all these stories people were telling me. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. My guest today is a recent founder of not one, but two companies focusing on intellectual property related to cannabis. A lifelong learner, Dr. Dale Hunt spent 16 years in university an early focus in botany seeded his path to advanced degrees in genetics and biology. This was all before pivoting to focus on IP law at Berkeley. Oh, I should also mention, he is an adoptive father of six children. After all that, it was great to hear him share how much he actually loved his first day interning at a law firm. 
what followed was 23 years focusing on IP for plant and green technology. Today, he is the founder and senior attorney at the Plant and Planet Law Firm. As a Mormon, cannabis was largely off his personal radar until some work for the Open Cannabis Project sparked his interest in the plant. It was a mystery to him why seemingly genuine people claim this plant alleviated so many different conditions. It sounded too good to be true. His journey in answering that question led to some very interesting revelations, eventually having a researcher who theorized an answer to this become a partner in his new venture, Breeders Best. The independent cannabis breeding landscape runs deep. Just go to any Emerald Cup. You'll meet the cannabis equivalent of the brewmaster or the vintner. Dr. Hunt views that community as an enormous untapped resource in covering the treasures of this amazing plant. Their model allows the breeder to own, protect, and profit from their IP without the typical upfront and ongoing burdens. Dr. Hunt shares a tremendous amount of insight and knowledge on plant IP and cannabis in this episode. What I love most about Dr. Hunt's founder's journey is that there are many times where he identified what he found interesting and chose to follow the curiosity. Please enjoy the founder's journey of Dr. Dale Hunt, founder and CEO of Breeders Best. You're founder of two different companies, Breeders Best and Plant and Planet Law Firm. Can you give us a quick summary of both of those and what you're doing there? Sure. I am a patent attorney and a plant scientist, and I've been a full-time attorney since 1996. I was a partner in a few different law firms, and along the way, I, I learned how very independent I am, and I realized that I would be most happy if I started my own law firm. And so I began Plant and Planet in 2019. Uh, I have a great team, but I don't have any partners. So I kind of get to do things the way I've kind of always thought they ought to be done, which is very much more entrepreneurial. Um, I'd say more public service oriented as well. And uh, we're excited about the opportunity to work with people. We protect inventions that really have uh, anything to do, well, in many cases, have things to do with making the planet better. That's really what it's about. So we do agriculture, cannabis, uh, water purification, uh, clean energy, medicine, um, international IP transactions, things like that. Breeders Best is the first company to apply a model that I've uh, had the great opportunity to be involved in applying in the fruit and flower industries. And so going back to my experience as an IP attorney, I have worked with uh, some, uh, in a couple of cases, very specifically, some family farms that started off growing, and then along the way they realized, hey, we're pretty good at breeding this. We can make better varieties than the things we can get from other people. And then, of course, the next step is to realize we ought to protect this. We need some IP. And then when they get the IP, they find that Instead of, if if you want to scale and you've already got thousands of acres in California or wherever, uh, if you want to scale to some other country, do you want to buy land, hire employees, et cetera? No. So what you do instead to access those other markets is licensing your IP. And I worked with a couple of family farms that went through this progress to the point of becoming, while they were still big production, uh, production companies, they also became IP licensors. And in both cases, they got to the point that their IP licensing revenues were greater than their production revenues. 
nobody's done that in cannabis. We're going to be the ones that will do it. That's excellent. And uh, one thing that really struck me about you is that you're, you could, you work with even small single person breeders uh, that are out there. And if you're a person with a, a plant and knowledge of, of getting through uh, breeding and, and making these plants for specific outcomes, you could work with you guys and not have the huge overhead of hiring a, I don't know what going rate is, six fifty an hour and up uh, IP attorney uh, and shelling out huge amounts of capital to get there, but then also access to this market. So you allow the breeders to be breeders and not force them to get into this whole other business model that you handle the back office stuff of going through applying for the patents and then also finding markets downstream for, for their breeds. Is that a, is that a good summary for the audience? Exactly. And that's, I'd say that's the main focus of breeders best. It was inspired by recognizing a need that some of the best breeders in the industry were individuals who didn't really have necessarily the right business backing or the right business connections, or just not any particular level of interest in being business people themselves. They, great creative uh, people. And they um, certainly could take advantage of the IP representation that the law firm offers. But I saw that there's a big gap between just getting the IP and having it bring revenues back to the breeder. And that was really the reason I started Breeders Best. It's it's very much focused on helping independent cannabis breeders uh, enjoy the the, uh, access to global markets. Nobody starts out, you know, at a young age being like, I want to be a plant scientist and I want to, I want to protect IP for cannabis when they grow up. Um, a lot of those are things that we, you know, cross, you know, during our, our life. And, you know, I've, when this show, this one thing this show tries to explore is what those values are and what makes an entrepreneur and that drive go in. And I think a lot of that starts with our parents and our upbringing and, and where we come from. So I'd love for you to share some of that. Like, where'd you grow up? What were your parents like? What was the family like? Okay. Uh, Yeah, I would probably be the last person you would ever pick to be the CEO of a cannabis company. Um, I was born in Texas on a military base. Uh, My dad was in the Air Force, but my parents had both grown up in a small town in Utah. And they uh, were, it was a very small town and everybody in the town was Mormon. And in fact, I was born an eighth generation Mormon. Oh, wow. And uh, that's, it's kind of interesting to think about the ways that might have shaped where I ended up. But I would say that um, uh, there are a few little signs, you know, that um, before Mormons were entirely conventional and entirely uh, conservative, they were kind of outlaws. They they ran away to Utah for a reason. And Mm -hmm. in fact, my uh, my maternal grandfather was born in the so-called Mormon colonies in Mexico because his parents were polygamous and they weren't allowed to live in the United States and stay together. Wow. And so uh, there's this odd way I have of kind of understanding people who have gone through their entire life and in some cases generations of, of history of being what you could say in air quotes, cannabis outlaws, right? Mm -hmm. That they had something that they were so committed to and that they believed in so much that it drove where they lived, um, how they lived. And it was, and these are not just, these are anything but bad people. These are people who are just very committed to a certain way of life and making it work. And so- they were committed to that belief that this is how we're going to live and that was their tunnel vision and they everything else worked around that 
that primary yeah. value. Yeah. Uh, so, and then uh, when I was five, my my parents split up. My dad was a fighter pilot in Vietnam, and my mom moved all the kids uh, from the Air Force base we were on at the time back to Utah. And it was very much church and education and hard work. I got my first job when I was eleven, um, delivering newspapers. Uh, I got finally a, an hourly wage job when I was 13. That, that, uh, that, that builds responsibility <laughs> though. You got to get up early for that. <laughs> Seven days a week, I was delivering newspapers. Sundays, it was in the morning and okay. that was awful. Uh, it, you know, <laughs> this is in Utah. So it was snowy and yeah. uh, not every, not every Sunday, but there were Sundays that it was snowy. And one thing my mom believed was that uh, if it was my job, it was my job. And so even on Thanksgivings, when on Thanksgiving, when all the newspapers were you know, a couple pounds each. Yeah. Um, or on snowy mornings, I never got a ride. <laughs> oh, wow. I never got any help. I always did it on my own or with the help of a friend. So, she taught you to um, figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, and I'm grateful for that. But yeah, I was also raised by a single mom who uh, was very careful with her money. Mm-hmm. Um, my brother and I grew up in an unfinished basement from when we moved into that house at age five. And I think I finally got my own bedroom when I was 12. Um, so I guess, and I, thanks to your, you know, your question, it's made me think about these things, but, uh, I think that one of the things I learned early was deferred gratification, Mm -hmm. um, that you have goals and you work towards those goals, which certainly helped me, uh, hang in there in college. And I think it kind of has qualified me to, uh, to run two, uh, relatively new companies. Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous amount of work getting stuff like that off the ground. What was your vision when you were uh, when you were a kid, though? Of like, I just need money to help out, or I want to do this, or like, what was some of that? Like, you just <laughs> love that. Like, I did work and I earned money. Or what was your vice? Were you going to the arcade? Were you playing ball? You know, that's a great question, and and I think it, in a way that connects in a way I hadn't anticipated to why I started my own firm. Mm. my reason to get a job at age 11, my mom didn't push me, but I wanted the independence of not having to get an allowance from her mm-hmm. and being able to, to spend my money the way I wanted to, which was usually not very wisely, but <laughs> it was it was at least the way I wanted to. I, I think I've got a pretty significant independence streak in there somewhere. You were at BYU for your undergrad and graduate school. When did you become interested in, in plants? Uh, I started off as a physics major, Um, actually, yeah, I, I, when I was a a freshman, I went to school thinking physics and then I quickly switched to political science. And then I left for a while to go on a mission to Venezuela where I had the great opportunity to, uh, meet people that were very different from me, um, and also learn Spanish. And that was fantastic. And Um, that's, that's part of growing up as as a Mormon that you go away and you, you do the, you do your missionary work. Yeah. You're definitely taught that it's your duty to go on a mission. And I didn't ever grow up considering that it was, that I had a choice, that it was an option, but I didn't mind that. It was something I'd always focused on. When in life did that happen? And I don't want to skip over that. uh... Um, Back then you had to be 19 years old to go if you were a young man and Mm -hmm. um, young women went at 21. But uh, so I did my freshman year of college and then, uh, and then the mission, and then I came back and jumped back into college. So when I got back to college, uh, I somehow got back into physics. But a friend encouraged me to take a biology class, and I, I realized I'd never had any biology in high school somehow. Really? And so for, somehow this, this botany class fit in my schedule. 
Okay. And I thought, okay, I'll take botany. Why not? In, by the third session, I was so captivated by biology itself, but also plants, that I changed my major three wow. sessions in. And I literally never looked back, never doubted it. I didn't have any real plan for how I would make a career out of botany, but it was just too fascinating not to pursue. And that passion stayed with you? Yeah, yeah. In a, in a different way than a lot of botanists. You know, a lot of botanists just can't, can't uh, resist going out in the field and, and identifying plants or being in the greenhouse all the time or being in front of a microscope or something. Um, for me, it was just learning more and more about the way things work. Mm-hmm. And, um, I just, I love learning things. And yeah. so, uh, after I finished my bachelor's degree, I stuck around for a master's studied plant genetics. And then I, uh, realized I still was hungry to learn more and didn't have any other plans. So I got a PhD at UC San Diego, um, doing molecular and cellular biology. My, I did have an objective there. I, I wanted to, I would hope there was a, there was an end business goal out of the end of this of like, <laughs> I'm just going to keep going to school and I'm going to know the most about plants <laughs> <laughs> and be like the best person you want to go hiking with. <laughs> By then I thought I would be a professor and I wanted to, I wanted to really learn the modern biology. You know, when I decided to go to do my PhD, it was it was in the late 80s, and people were talking about genetic engineering. People mm-hmm. had just started this company called Genentech, mm-hmm. and um, and I was interested in uh, in learning about how plant how plants worked on the molecular level, mm-hmm. and so um, I studied uh, protein targeting and deposition in developing seeds for my PhD. But what I learned after six years of that was that. Um, I didn't want to be chasing grants. I didn't want to be studying one molecule forever. And so I loved all the science I'd learned, but I wanted a bigger picture and decided that law school was the way to go. Gotcha. And that's the part of becoming more and more specialized is that you get more and more specialized. Yeah. What they, what they say about someone with a PhD is that you study more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And you had an issue with that. You were like, I don't want to be this hyper-specialized, but you love learning and you just kept going on and, and, and getting more and more advanced degrees. During that time that you were in education, what were you doing other than that? What was life like throughout college for you? Well, as a typical Mormon, I got married very soon after my mission. I met someone very soon after my mission and We were married about six months later. We wanted to have kids, which is another very typical Mormon thing. Um, That didn't turn out to be possible, but we were kind of on a quest for adoption. And so about the time that that I was um, starting my PhD, we had an opportunity to adopt. And um, it was was, uh, very special, obviously. It's it's the biggest thing that's ever happened to you. And, and, um, one of the great parts of that was that this uh, this child that we had the opportunity to adopt was mixed race. And the reason that was so special was because it changed our mindset. A lot of people who want to adopt, they still, at least especially back then, mm-hmm. I think they felt that they needed to somehow create the impression that that the child was naturally theirs. They wanted a baby that looked like them. Mm-hmm. And we got over that immediately because there was no, there's no pretending that he looked like us. I think we, we weren't so focused on that anyway, but it was a very, um, 
uh, clear step into, hey, this this family was created by adoption and um, we just love babies. And so uh, we ended up adopting six kids. Wow. Uh, My oldest is 31. My youngest is 15. Um, Four are mixed race, uh, three boys, three girls. And that's been the best education of my life, obviously. Kids teach you so much. But for example, just seeing my, three of my kids have African ancestry. Mm-hmm. And and they can identify in a lot of different ways, but especially when they got into high school, they identified as African-American. They had mm-hmm. so much in common with those African-American kids in terms of their life experience, just what it's like every day to be African-American. And in many cases, they had more in common with those kids than they did with the Mormon kids that they'd been raised alongside with, uh, oh, alongside. Wow. And so as my, uh, a couple of my kids, at least, as they got into high school, they definitely gravitated more. I'd say culturally to um, racial affinities than to religious affinities, oh, and uh, so that's been such an education for me. I I never would have been able to see as close what that's like, and mm-hmm. it has been very helpful to me to to witness that in my children and to to as I look at the world right now through their eyes. Yeah, I I recognize things differently than I probably would have just based on my upbringing. That is absolutely amazing. Six kids. Uh, and <laughs> now that they're getting out of the house, uh, you have to find other things to do with your time. So let's start two businesses. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what's, what's great about being a weed lawyer and now a, you know, a cannabis uh, entrepreneur is mm-hmm. my kids are finally interested in what I do for a living. They think it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> He's at the office filing right. some USPTO. So you, you're off at UC San Diego and you're, you have your PhD in biology and molecular and cellular biology, but you didn't want to specialize. What brought you into the law? What made you want to go on for another advanced degree? <laughs> well, I had a friend who had gone to law school after, after finishing a PhD in our same department. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about a few different options. I was actually still considering staying in science and doing some postdoctoral work, but I was not too excited about the opportunities there, even though my uh, PhD advisor was very well known and he he made sure I had lots of great opportunities for great postdocs. Every time I got a new postdoc opportunity, I was not super excited about it. I just didn't love the the direction that was taking me. But I had this friend that had gone to law school. I talked to him and he sounded just so energized by the fact that in his career, he got to learn new things all the time about all kinds of things. So it was always quite science-oriented, but it also had uh, um, an impact on, in many cases, business, um, in some cases, social policy, in some cases, health. And to me, it was it, it sounded like it was going to feed me in ways that, uh, that my PhD had actually kind of starved me. Gotcha. And so... Um, as I, you know, I, I applied to a bunch of law schools. Every time I got a new law school admission, I was excited. And every time I got a new postdoc offer, I was kind of n- not too excited. And that was really the, the answer. And, so, and you were consciously aware of that. And you're like, I am yeah. excited about this. I am not excited about that. Let's, let's you know, put my energy to, to, to where I'm excited and not. Yeah. My, my poor ex, we were, we were married for a long time. We're not anymore. But especially during this time, she would hear me agonize over this decision for, you know, uh, every day for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and until I, when I finally made the decision, I think she was just glad that, 
decision was, I was made. Finished. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's another one of those things, a little bit like changing my major, although it certainly took longer to make the decision. It's something I've never regretted. I've never looked back on. It's obviously been fortuitous for you. So you went to UC Berkeley for, for law school and focused on intellectual property. Was your interest always going into that of like, I want to get into plant IP um, with, with your background? Yeah, I, I thought it, it would that would be a likely arc. But when I went to law school, I was just so excited about learning new things and, and exploring some new opportunities. And so um, one of the things I held open was I definitely wanted to, to bring all the science, all the investment in 12 years of science education into something I did as a lawyer. One, one would but, hope after spending yeah, that much time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Um, but uh, uh, when I got to Berkeley, I thought it w- I might do environmental law or I might do intellectual property. But, you know, you get to Berkeley, especially this was 93 when I started. It seemed like everybody in my class wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And then I also learned that most environmental lawyers don't get paid unless they rep- represent polluters. Mm. And, um, and I already had two kids at the time and I was thinking, okay, well, I definitely need to see an income out there somewhere. The other thing is when you're in law school, you, you try to find paying jobs during the summer that helps you, you know, keep, keep going. And, um, the summer that I was looking for my first summer job, it was that the economy was not doing well. And most of, of the students, even at Berkeley, were not able to get paying jobs. I sent out 100 letters, and this is before emails. Well, it was actually, emails were around, but it wasn't a, a typical way of communicating. And so I sent out 100 physical letters and got one offer. Actually, I got one interview, and I, I was very fortunate that it turned into an offer. And uh, it was with a firm in L.A., and I never thought I would want to spend time in L.A., but when it's your only option, it became attractive. And then I ended up loving LA. I loved LA. I loved the summer. I loved everything I learned. And, um, but I remember the morning I was driving to that job, you know, I had, um, I'd had a long history of working for very little money. Um, you know, even as a grad student, you, you, uh, you do get a stipend, but it's, it's, it's a very modest stipend. It's roof and food and that's about it. Right. Um, and my summer job, this was, this was 94, summer of 94. And um, I think it paid $1,200 a week. And um, I was on my way. I was driving on Sepulveda Boulevard on my way to work the first day. And I was thinking, this is, they're going to find me out. I don't, I'm not qualified to do anything that they need me to do. And I just hope I, I I hope I don't fall on my face, but I I was really wondering how in the world they would get their money's worth out of me. (laughs) And by lunchtime, I'm sitting in an office with my own phone, which was kind of crazy, and my own computer. And uh, I had a stack of scientific papers that they wanted me to read and a rejection from the patent office. And they said, we think the examiner is wrong about what this, what the science says, but we need you to help just, just take some time and translate this and tell us what each of these papers says and poke some holes in the examiner's position. I have never enjoyed reading scientific papers as much as that morning. <laughs> Until then, I read them all through all through uh, grad school as kind of a duty, but I'd never been so focused, and and it was so fun. And that was when I knew, and I had it kind of reconfirmed to me many times. But I knew that that was going to be a good job for me. That was that was an aha moment for you. Yes. That like I found it out was. how to deliver value. You're not. You got over your imposter syndrome rather quickly. <laughs> I did. 
did you move your family down there or were you just commuting at that yeah, point? Yeah, we, we were lucky to get a, we had a student apartment in Berkeley. Okay, this is a family of four people. We had a newborn. She was actually born the day that we were moving from San Diego to Berkeley. And uh, we picked her up from the hospital on the way to Berkeley. Wow. Um, and uh, so there were four of us in a 600 square foot apartment um, at the Albany Village. These were World War II barracks that had been converted to student apartments and they've been torn down since then. But um, they were already 50 years old when we moved in, but the price was right. The price was great. So um, it, it was relatively easy to find somebody to, to keep our place there uh, during the summer. And we were lucky enough to get some student housing, uh, UCLA grad student housing, which was right near where the office was on Santa Monica Boulevard and Sepulveda. And uh, I hope I'm remembering the streets right. But uh, so, yeah, it was, it was, so we all went down to San Diego. I did have that, that summer I actually did internships with three firms. I was 11 weeks with the one in LA. I was a week in Portland and three days at a firm in San Diego. And the three day stint in San Diego was basically just a long interview. That was the one that I ended up choosing after law school and, and worked there for 11 years. You were in school from 1980 to 96, pretty much nonstop. What was that transition like in, 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 in moving out of constantly paying to learn to constantly getting paid to learn? I remember one of the first days I was at my law firm, my billing rate was $150 an hour. And I remembered that my first hourly pay when I was 13, I got paid $1.50 an hour for cleaning the tar off the bottom of a boat. Somebody had pulled their boat on a fresh road and there were little bits of tar. And I remember thinking $1.50 an hour was awesome because I'd been making $50 a month delivering newspapers seven days a week. And so, but I real I realized, okay, somehow I'm a hundred times more valuable than I was when I was cleaning the, the tar off the, off a boat. Um, that was kind of mind blowing to me, but, you know, having been in school for 15 years and adopted a couple kids, you know, I always had a lot of jobs in law school. I, I usually had two or three jobs, at, but my, my wife also worked um, a lot too. And she had a, job as a respiratory therapist. So the, I think the biggest thing about ha about having a real career type job was mm -hmm. just being able to afford to rent a house and to um, pay some bills on time instead of having to juggle them. It was, it was really nice. For those years, I mean, you're kind of living hand to mouth and you're following your passion. Yeah. So, I mean, that those are some lessons that definitely prepared you for, for later on in life. You stayed at that law firm for 11 years and as a, as an IP attorney, yes. um, or as a patent attorney, and you had four positions doing the exact same thing afterwards for about 20 plus years throughout that time. What was your focus? What kind of cases were you working on? Well, you know, that's a, I like that question because you know, what I wanted to do, I just wanted to be valuable to my firm and I wanted to learn as much as I could. But I did think with three science degrees that that I'd be doing biotech right from the start when I got to my first firm. But when I got there, um, biotech was a little bit slow. The biotech attorneys were all kind of looking for work, but we had a brand new client that had just transferred in a lot of cases mm -hmm. that were in water purification. So I learned all about polymer filters and making membrane filters and turning sewage into drinkable water and hollow fiber membranes. And um, I was on the phone with the client in Australia almost every day. So I could always <laughs> tell you what time it was in Sydney. Um, I got to go to Australia a couple times and 
Um, uh, and so I really became a water purification expert just because I, I did that for 10 mm -hmm. years, more than half of my time. Along the way, I did fill up my docket with other things. And so I did university biotech work and medical device work and um, worked with a lot of universities on whatever they, they needed help with. And I did some alternative energy. And, and so at, at a certain point when I was still with that same firm, but I was um, in their San Francisco office, and I know I'm making the geography confusing. I started in the San Diego office of that firm, went to the San Francisco office after a few years. And um, this is when clean tech became an investment category. And somebody from one of the newspapers or one of the business journals in San Francisco was looking at um, clean tech as a legal practice. And she identified me as a clean tech attorney. And I thought, huh, I've never thought of that. But yeah, actually, I work in agriculture and water purification, alternative energies, natural insecticides, a bunch of things that, yeah, you could call those clean tech. And so I, I said, <laughs> all right, I'm a clean tech patent attorney. Um, and really, that's the reason that my firm has the name it does. When I was looking to start my own firm, I yep. didn't want to just put some last names on it. Um, I, and I also wanted to send a message to all of my clients that even though I had made a big step into cannabis, yep. um, I wasn't leaving them behind. And so I decided to try to wrap mm -hmm. all this together with the name of the firm, which and what we do, we work on things that make the planet better. Yeah. And that's that's where the the plant and planet law firm came about you're like this is our focus it doesn't need to be you know hunt Leibowitz and, and goldberg or whatever else you know whoever other attorneys that you had there <laughs> so you took a lot of your clients with you to to, to make the plant and planet law firm and, and go on that focus one thing that's harder than starting a business is uh starting two um <laughs> <laughs> We want to get into Breeders Best because that's really the the focus of of today's show. But yes. before we get into that, like, what was your relationship to cannabis to to have some of those sparks uh, for this idea for Breeders Best? Yeah, well, I'm going to go back to high school. I had a relationship with cannabis in high school, even though I was a very, mm -hmm. very strict Mormon. Some of my very best friends in high school smoked like chimneys, and they, they and, and we would go to concerts, and I was the designated yeah. driver, so I was around it long enough and with people I've loved enough that I, I never judged it as the outright evil that, that it wasn't the devil's weed for you. No, it was just something other people did. Like, like a lot of things that, that, that a lot of things Mormons don't do. Um, but when I was uh, pretty far into my career, uh, I had an opportunity, I was asked to work with a group called the open cannabis project as a legal advisor, and then for a while as a board member, and then back as a legal advisor. And that was my first exposure to cannabis as an, as an industry or as a legal challenge. And um, uh, so that was when I really started to look at, um, look at it in those ways. What time frame was that? That was late 2013. What was some of the work that you did there? OCP was uh, started at least nominally with the goal of helping people, helping protect the little guy in the cannabis industry from uh, overbearing uh, uh, patent owners and from those who would claim that they invented something they didn't invent. So the, the, the stated goal of OCP, among others, was to, um, to help people document uh, their own work in such a way that it would preclude other people patenting it. And so, you know, there was a place for a patent attorney there, but it was, it was largely an anti-patent 
uh, posture. And so it was a little odd to have a patent attorney on the board, which is why I went off the board and became an advisor. But really what it was, and I am very much this way, was an anti-patent abuse posture. It was, it was against patents that overreach into things that, that um, the person didn't invent and that throw people um, out of their, really their own rightful territory in an industry. To end the stifling of innovation, you could broadly patent something and then that would just stifle innovation within that area, but not reward right. everyone else. Okay. So that was around 2013. Yeah. And then um, my firm, this is one of those situations that, that told me I didn't, I eventually needed to graduate from having partners. It took my firm actually several months to decide whether I could even officially be affiliated with it, with, with OCP. Um, it was, you know, it had to be, it was a partnership decision because it, there was some concern that it would be smirched the, the nature uh, that the, the good name of the firm. Um, obviously yeah. <laughs> firms are now scrambling to be in the industry, yeah. at, but those were different times. And so, um, uh, but eventually I was, you know, permitted to openly be, be supportive of that group and affiliated with it. And then, um, eventually I, I had an opportunity to uh, start to go to, to cannabis meetings you know, conventions and things and uh, to promote my law practice and to learn about the industry. And I remember the, one of the first meetings I went to, people were talking about CBD. I didn't have a clue what it was. I had to Google it sitting right there in the meeting. And, um, and that's when I learned that there, was, that, that there was more than one thing in the plant. You know, I grew up thinking, maybe like a lot of people, that marijuana was a drug like Valium or Percocet or something like that. A single molecule. This yeah, is it's this a is. drug. And yeah. and I, I and and then you learn that no, this is a plant that has incredibly diverse biochemistry, and it makes all kinds of things that do different things to a, a, a receptor system that the body evolved. And it it was to me when I when I figured that out, it was it was a scientific turn on. You like must you have been. You believe. must have geeked out to this, right? You oh, must have so dove in. geeked out. Although, <laughs> although this is this is um. Uh, kind of a, a this was a big turning point for me in in, in the industry. Um, as I started meeting people, everybody has a story about how um, CBD cured something they had. Mm -hmm. You know, I had a brain injury. I had Crohn's. I had cr problems with my sleep. I had chronic pain. I and I I believed all these people because they were so sincere and they're telling me their firsthand account. But as a scientist, I started to get skeptical. I thought, all right. This this just this doesn't sound credible. It sounds like snake oil. Is is it just the best placebo in history? And so while I was fascinated by the science of what what I was beginning to learn, I had a hard time reconciling that with all these anecdotes until um, I heard of this physician named Ethan Russo, who had a theory um, called chronic endocannabinoid deficiency. And you're, you might be familiar with that, but mm -hmm. it is basically, you know, our body makes our own cannabinoids. Uh, we, that's why we have an endocannabinoid system. Is, is there's, we have a lot of receptor systems in our bodies that perceive things. That we, it's, it's kind of like a thermostat on steroids. And even just saying on steroids, there are steroid receptors. And so our body basically communicates with itself and regulates its systems by creating molecules that signal receptors, turning them on, turning them off, adjusting them, attenuating them. That's how genes get regulated. And so we have an endocannabinoid system. And I learned that Ethan had a theory that 
because of the distribution of the endocannabinoid system, it's all through the body, it's in the nervous system, it's in the peripheral nervous system, it's in the immune system, the different parts of the immune system, through the digestive system, that, um, that it may have a role in something called homeostasis, mm-hmm. which is regulating the steady state, the, the good conditions, whether it's you know, uh, good immune function, good, um, uh, good emotional state, uh, good neurotransmission, all kinds of things. If you've got homeostasis is the body keeping its, its good state of things. And so if, um, if that is regulated by the endocannabinoids that our bodies make, and then we start not making enough of those endocannabinoids, you think about people with a hormone deficiency, you know, everybody gets to a certain age where the men aren't making as much testosterone as they used to. The women aren't making as much estrogen. Your body starts to change. So Ethan's explanation for why one thing like CBD could have such a multiplicity of effects was the the endocannabinoid system regulates homeostasis by perceiving the endocannabinoids that we make, just like some other hormone or something. Mm -hmm. And if you're deficient for it, CBD is a supplement. And then whatever was getting messed up by that deficiency gets fixed. Oh, interesting. And, and when I, when I read that, I was, I was suddenly, I could, I could recognize as a molecular biologist, the, the viability of, of all these stories people were telling me. So like those stories could be true. It's not just people trying to sell something. And that was a scientific answer that made sense. And what is a theory that you can then go and test? Yeah. And then I, you know, I was an instant Ethan Russo fan. And then my goal was, I've got to meet this guy. I just want to, I just want to shake his hand and tell him I admire his work and, and, thank you for making sense of stuff that did not make any sense to me. And that was making me kind of wonder about whether this was all just a bunch of uh, hocus pocus. So you so, picked up the phone and just called them, right? Well, almost. I mean, I, I wanted to, it turned out we were both invited speakers at Emerald cup, okay. um, which is a really big, it's a really, it's, it's the, um, the place where cannabis breeders get together and they have, um, they bring their best work and judges test it, but it's also just, it's like a state fair of cannabis and it's actually at the fairgrounds in Sonoma County. And, um, I had attended once before just to check it out and then, um, and actually for an OCP meeting. And then the following year I was, I was on a panel and I noticed that Ethan was speaking and I just thought, okay, I'm going to go to his talk and I'm going to introduce myself and just shake his hand. That was my, my main goal for going to Emerald Cup that year. So as I was um, walking off the stage at the end of my panel discussion, um, this woman approached me and she said, I work with Dr. Ethan Russo. Um, we've been looking for somebody like you. Would you be willing to have dinner with us? Now, let's say you go to a baseball game because you're a fan of, uh, of some, you know, Justin Verlander. And then somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Justin Verlander really has been wanting to meet somebody like you. Say, oh, okay. Well, let me see if I can fit that into my schedule. So, um, I just, I'm trying to imagine what your shocked face looks like. I'm like, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Brian Weber here. Just wanted to pause for a quick second and thank you all for listening and all the positive feedback and support we've received about the show. It means a great deal. I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time, and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. 
somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews. Giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause. I'll wait right here. Thank you. So we had dinner, I think the next night, and uh, the three of us, Ethan and his colleague, Nisha Whiteley, and I, and we talked. And it was only just a few weeks before that I'd had the idea for Breeders Best. And he was one of the first people I shared the idea with. And his enthusiasm was, it was so validating and it was so exciting. So you guys were vibing uh, with that. So yeah. that's, that's fantastic. So that's, I mean, you manifested the heck out of that. Yeah, um, it really did. <laughs> that's amazing that that happened though, that you were it's just focusing amazing. on him and she came up to you and you guys had uh, a great meeting on that. What did you share with him during your dinner together and, and both of them? What was stimulating in your head about Breeders Best? Because uh, you have a unique uh, model with it. And I found it really fascinating. Yeah, it was, it, you know, there's a Genesis story for Breeders Best, and um, uh, and I just shared that with him, and it really goes like this. You know, I had, I had been um, working in the cannabis industry mostly as a policy-type advisor, trying to get some traction in my law practice, but, you know, it took a while to, to even be known or, or have people recognize who I was or anything, but I started speaking at a few meetings, and then I would meet cannabis breeders. And the, the, the conversation was often like this. A cannabis breeder would either approach me in person or get a hold of me on the phone or by email. And we'd have a conversation. They would say, I've been breeding cannabis my, my whole life. I've got 20 years of breeding cannabis or 30 or 40 years. And I've got something really special. But I know somebody else who's been breeding and they got ripped off. So I know I need a patent attorney to help me so that I don't get ripped off. And we'd have a conversation. I'd say, well, that's what I do. I'd love to help you with that. But then it became very, very clear, very quickly that they weren't really in a position to pay for the help. Yeah. And that the other thing about, you know, and I remember one of my first meetings with a client when I was a, a baby attorney, the partner told the client, okay, the easy part is getting you a patent, but getting you a patent, it doesn't just rain money as soon as you have a patent. You have to have a way to turn that into something that'll pay for itself. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had learned along the way, if, if you have someone pay out of their own pocket for a patent, it doesn't matter how great that patent is, they're still going to feel the cost and they're going to end up not liking the system or probably even their attorney, even if you do a great job for them. Yep. Uh, so, Because patents don't just generate revenue on their own. So I would have this conversation with the breeders and explain to them that um, I'd love to help them get a patent. I don't want to waste their money. I don't want to take their money unless there's a way that they have a, someone who is willing to help them pay for it and is willing to help them make some money with it. It's hard to share this stuff because you could, if somebody gives somebody a plant, you could just take yeah. something off of that and, and there's your IP right there. And I'll give you a quick story about this. Um, back to the family farms that I worked with early in my career. One of them 
had a really special variety of grape that fortunately I did have a patent on. Mm-hmm. And we kind of, uh, pr- as a precaution, had filed for IP protection in a bunch of different countries with a similar climate, just in case. Um, and then we got news that there was one foreign country where my client had never done any business, but there was a massive amount of table grapes that looked like they were indistinguishable from my client's variety. And um, turned out we did some DNA testing. It was it was an infringement. Fortunately, we had some IP there. They were able to turn all those infringing farmers into licensees, turn it into a revenue stream. It was a win-win. Um, but the way that got there was somebody took a tour of their farm, grabbed a little bit of the plant, stuck it in his sock, and smuggled it out of there to that foreign country. Um, so it does. That's the whole point. It doesn't take much. You yeah. you can have trusted relationships with all your you know your nursery and your growers. It, it only takes one disgruntled employee or something falling off of a off of a, a out of a trash can or something, and it, it only takes a little bit to have to grow into massive infringement. Wow! So wow. so that what I told these breeders was I'd love to help you, but I don't think. I don't think you'll be satisfied with the result. Then I had attended, just before I went to Emerald Cup, I'd attended MJ BizCon, and I saw all the money flying around there. And and then I had another conversation like the very next day with a breeder. And in this situation, I asked him, I said, I can't make any promises, but if I could find a sponsor that would help you cover the cost and help you get commercial access, would you be interested in sharing your revenues with them? Because maybe that's a, an opportunity to make this work so that I don't end the conversation the same way every time. And he said, absolutely, I'd love that. So then I just ruminated on it for a while. And, and what I came up with was, what if somebody had something like a record company, mm-hmm. a music label, that's a, analogous to that, where the breeder is the, is the songwriter and the company does everything else. They do, they, they do the, 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 the legal work. They do the production, all the marketing, the commercialization, and then the creative person gets to just focus on what they love to do and cash checks. Um, And so I thought it was probably a crazy idea and something people would poke holes in. Ethan was one of the first people I told that idea to, and he was very enthusiastic about it. The, The idea is that this would give you the opportunity to crowdsource all this creativity of all these people who've been spending decades breeding the plant and get the very best of all of that and help them make money. Because if anybody's being left out of this booming industry, it's those individual plant breeders who are so dedicated and they're not getting paid. They don't have the economies of scale to grow uh, right. and, and, and be the, you know, the, the big players in this industry, but they're probably the people who have the most passion for, for what yeah. they're doing. And it's frankly, it's, I mean, I think your quote, but in my notes, it's like just the biggest R and D lab for plant medicine that's out there and it's just sitting there and it's untapped and these people need a pathway for that so exactly uh great business ideas solve problems and really great ones solve many problems and those are the effective ones that that work so you guys are at this dinner you pitch this they're a game what happens next (laughs) what happened next was um that validated the idea the idea that somebody ought to start this record company kind of thing and then I was talking, I, I decided to talk to, um, I thought, okay, well, if we're going to start this business, we need to, I, I've, I've been outside counsel to a lot of startup companies. I've really, I've taken a few of them all the way through an IPO. So I've seen the IP side of a lot of business, but I'd never started a business. Um, 
So I got in touch with one of the best business lawyers I've ever known and asked him about what he would, how he'd advise. And he connected me with somebody that, um, that was really excited about the opportunity, but it turned out that, you know, kind of the terms he wanted to work together on were not exactly right. And, um, I was still, my main goal was let's find somebody, this business needs to exist. Let's find somebody to, to start this business and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And then I had a conversation with the best um, startup CEO I'd ever worked with as outside counsel. And I thought, maybe he could be the CEO. Maybe he could start this business. Um, he's the best I've ever seen. And he said, this was, this was a really important moment. He said, you know, I can't right now, and, but I, you need to also know I'm not the right guy to do this. He said, the right person to be a startup CEO is the person who has the vision and the passion and who can tell the story and who, who really makes his, who's got to make it go. And he said, you need to be the CEO. He said, but I'll be your coach. I can help you not make rookie mistakes. This guy's been a CEO of a bunch of different startups. You found a mentor. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine if I had, if I had decided I was going to be the CEO and then I wanted to go recruit somebody like that, no way could I have found somebody that I've, I mean, I've seen him operate firsthand. He's great. And so, but, but that was, that was the first time I even thought of being the CEO myself, but I thought, okay, I can see that. And I know I've seen good CEOs and I've seen bad CEOs, or let's say less successful CEOs. Um, I've seen successful startup businesses and I've seen very unsuccessful startup businesses. I know why they've been unsuccessful. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I certainly couldn't do this alone, but I could do it. Um, and so, especially with, with my friend Rick as, as my coach and um, another person from that same organization who is the, the very best business lawyer I've ever worked with, who is also part of our team, he's, he, he gives us advice on um, all kinds of startup law and financing and those kinds of things. Um, then I, I started thinking about how do we actually make this go? And I, I got back in touch with Ethan. It, we'd been we'd run into each other a couple meetings, not just we'd plan to meet at a couple meetings. And, um, and I asked him if he'd be willing to be on the advisory board. And, um, he was at a place in his in his employment situation that he was thinking about what else he might do. And, and, um, uh, he, he said, well, I I really do want to be on on the advisory board, but I've got to make sure it works and, uh, you know, I get permission or whatever. And, um, uh, but then he, was so committed to the mission and to the vision that he said, you know, I am going to be on your advisory board. I just am. So I'll, I'll sort out the rest of it. And then he suggested that I talk to Rob Clark and I'd heard of Rob Clark. I knew some breeders that worship the guy and I'm thinking, all right, well, you want to make an introduction. I'll talk to him. And so I got a chance to talk to Rob Clark and I told him about this and uh, Rob had so many thoughts about it. I ended up having so many dinners and lunches with him and his longtime business partner, Mojave Richmond. Um, but as this, this all came together, it, it turned out that Ethan became available to not just be on the advisory board, but to be our medical director. And Rob and Mojave are also on the team and they're just, they're so good and they're celebrities. And one of the things that I know about being a CEO, I've seen, I've seen some CEOs that are so confident in their own skills that they want to micromanage everything. Um, I've seen good CEOs that know what they're good at and they get other people who are good at other things and they they trust their team to do what they're good at. Now, I know that 
I, I don't think there's anybody who's done more um, international plant licensing and international plant IP protection, certainly not in the cannabis industry than I've done. So I've got that one wired. I know I can handle that part. And I've had some good leadership experience in other parts of my life. And I, I'm comfortable as a leader, but I'm not going to begin to tell Ethan how to do his job. And I'm not going to tell Mojave how to do his job. And if Rob says something that, that he thinks is important, I'm going to listen. I, I mean, these are people who were, they go back as far in the cannabis industry um, as, as well, way, way farther than I do. And the, the, their roots in the cannabis industry, I think are as deep and important as anybody's. And so um, uh, anyway, I'm thrilled about our team and the, the beauty of it is they all really believe in what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, you've assembled. I mean, I'm looking at your 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 team page here. I mean, there's a lot of experience uh, here, and it's you know it's a lesson for you know I mean, for some new leaders of like I have referred to it as flipping the pyramid of like you work for them, get out of their way, just make sure that you set the divi- you know the vision and the path, but bring in great people and trust them to do great things and and get out of their way. Um, and especially running two firms now, that's, uh, that's, that's important. You don't have time to, to, to manage. That's, that's a luxury. I, I definitely want to mention just a couple of other team members because yeah. they're so important. Um, uh, Ethan's longtime colleague, Nisha Whiteley, um, I'm extremely fortunate that she was also available to join us. And she's really leading marketing and business development. And she's phenomenal at that. And she's so passionate and so patient with everyone. She's she's a tremendous leader. And then another real coup that we scored was um, getting Colleen Byers, who um, uh, I met her when we were both doing work with Flocana. I was outside counsel and she worked there. And um, But Colleen, I think even her most uh, valuable experience comes from a previous company when she worked for a company called Rocket Farms. And I'm probably not going to do justice to her job, but she was involved in the supply chain and planning for a company that would put the fresh basil plants in all the grocery stores and the orchids in all the Trader Joe's and the Venus flytraps, wherever you sell Venus flytraps. And and they had all these different kinds of plants that they would farm so that they were, there was a new batch ready for delivery every week in perfect oh condition. And you think about the planning. She's, I think she said a Venus flytrap, it takes 18 months to have it ready to deliver. So you've got to have week-by-week week planning to in terms of your space utilization and oh. your propagation and, and everything so that you've got perfect product every week. You go to the supermarket and you just you pick it's up there. tomatoes and you just, well, this is great. They got someone planned that. <laughs> right. And this is even more the case with live plants. And so as we look at planning, you know, it, some of our varieties that we're going to be working with, with these, this amazing uh, crowdsource breeder R&D team, some of them will be good indoor varieties. Others will be will need to be grown outdoors. It will be best outdoors. Some will be grown regeneratively. We, we're really excited about the organic and regenerative side of this. Um, but every one of these is going to be something that somebody is going to need to have delivered to them on time and high quality. And the way that this team can do that from Mojave's horticultural expertise, um, Colleen's supply chain and planning expertise. Again, something I said in a recent call with an investor was, if I had set my goal, my sights to have a team like this and then tried to find a recruiter to, to gather them all up, there's no way we could have done this and there's no budget that could have accomplished it. But what did it instead was that we all are in this industry, we've gotten to know each other, 
and we see the value of this vision and we see its importance. And we, we believe it's going to help a lot of breeders, but it's also going to change the world. It's going to bring great medicine to people literally all over the world. I love when, when founders shout out their teams as well, because it's not <laughs> just about it's not just about them. So you have this mission, you're you're fulfilling part of your heroes. I mean, this is like textbook. I mean, you got your mentor, you got, you know, your vision here, you got your team together. What does that next step look like? How are you guys starting to um, start up on that quest and, and explore that? Looking at the bright side of 2020, we've had a lot of time to really get our plans in place and get our act together. And we know what we're going to do and we're, uh, we're champing at the bit to do it, but we are, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited about the progress we've made in 2020, even though it's not what we thought it would be. I'd like to go over from somebody who has a PhD in this is what is the makeup of cannabis? Breaking that down to a very simple level, because there's a lot of information that's out there and I'd love to get it from a scientist. Well, I wish that we had Rob Clark here to do this, but acknowledging that you just need to go read Rob's books for that. You'll, you'll just get a wonderful education as a, as a scientist, as a botanist and a biochemist uh, or a molecular biologist. To me, the plant is um, among the plants that I'm aware of, it is the most biochemically rich and diverse plant. Um, it's it's rich and diverse, not just in in the biochemistry that it can crank out and the, the biochemistry it can do, but also in its um, the, the value of all the different parts of the plant. You know, it, it, back to my job as a patent attorney, I work with uh, companies that treat hemp seeds as sources of um, nutritional products, as well as oils and proteins. Um, I work with companies that um, that do all kinds of that, that make plastics out of hemp, and you know you look at all the a little bit of a, a tangent here. That hog farmers say that, that they they end up using everything but the oink, right? There's every bit of the pig has a use, and that's we we use everything but the oink in the cannabis plant. It, it, when I say we, I mean humans. Uh, there's something useful about every part of the plant. Environmentally sustainable fuels, construction products, plastics, um, textiles, paper, um, you name it. But then if we go back to just the cannabinoids and the terpenes. And, and so when I was first, when I had to look up CBD and learn that there's more than one, it's not all THC. I'd heard of THC. When I had to look up TH, CBD, I, I didn't take me long to learn that there's this class of molecules called cannabinoids. The plant makes them really uh, as defense molecules against predators, against being eaten by insects or, or defenses to other kinds of, of um, harms. You know, plants can't run away. Their fight or flight is, they, they don't have flight as an option, mm-hmm. so they have to fight. And they, do, they engage in biochemical warfare with their predators and sometimes with each other. And so cannabis is one of the most sophisticated uh, sources of uh, biochemical diversity. Um, and the, the, it makes over 100 different cannabinoids. Right now, two of them are industries, THC and CBD. There's another eight or 10 that have been studied enough to know something about what they do and what the benefits they might bring. There's another 100 plus that haven't even been, been characterized in terms of what they can do. And I tell people, and I absolutely believe this, the future of medicine is in those other 100 cannabinoids. When we figure out what they do and put them to use, it's going to be immense. And Ethan will correct me and say, it's not even just medicine. 
those other 100 cannabinoids, as well as the terpenes, have all kinds of industrial applications. And, um, and then, of course, everybody, not everybody, many people love the recreational side of it, too. So the, the, it's, it's really breathtaking, the diversity of ways that this plant can bring benefits to people. Um, so biochemically, though, the, the things that, that, that we're focused on are the cannabinoids and the terpenes. Ethan will tell you that the terpenes have a, have, play a real role in interacting with the cannabinoids. This is called the entourage effect. Um, and then there are also other uh, defense molecules called flavonoids that can also have, um, uh, are very likely to have some effects. And as we dial into all of those details, we really are going to see that it's just this incredibly rich biochemistry. So when a breeder is breeding and, and doing what they do, they're through um, plant ancestry and, and, and building the plants together, they're going for desired chemical outputs or desired features of a, of a plant, whether it works well in low temperatures or high temperatures or whether it produces certain things. Is that, is that the long story, long and short of it? Yeah, it really is. Um, it's, it's, it's what, what a geneticist would call phenotypically driven. Mm -hmm. So the phenotype is what you can observe about a plant. The genotype is the collection of genes that underlie that, that, that drive those, those, um, the phenotype. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I actually had an interesting conversation with someone who was criticizing plant uh, cannabis breeders because by saying, well, they're all self-trained. They, they, they haven't had any real training. And my answer to that was I've worked with plant breeders that have PhDs, masters, bachelors, and all these self-trained cannabis breeders. And first of all, the, some of the cannabis breeders I know are the very best I've ever seen at ter in terms of plant breeding. Um, but more importantly, they really are all after the same thing. Back when I was working with grapes and peaches you know you you say okay we like we like that this grape stays on the bunch really well and it, it can withstand um uh packaging this one tastes better let's put these together and see what we get and really what it is it and that's that's a very simplified way of saying it but you know you you say all right i wish there were a plant that had all the good things of this parent and the good things of that parent let's do a cross let's grow out a thousand or 10,000 seeds, pick the ones, first of all, will be really merciless in throwing away all the plants that don't look amazingly vigorous. But then once we've select, looked at all the ones that, that grow really well, whether that's, you know, a hundred or 10 or some, some real, you know, the, the, the high end of that, of that bell curve, then we start to look at what their chemical properties are. And if you can find a plant that looks like it's going to be a great crop, because it likes to grow and it's stable, but it also does what you want biochemically, then yeah, it was worth sorting through 10,000, you know, kissing 10,000 toads to get to that prince. Because you got that one prince and then that is going to be the peach and yeah. you, you go on from there. That's the new variety. What does that look like when you get a, a breeder's submission? And what are all the steps that you guys have to go through? It's not just DNA. It's not just what it looks like. I was reading, there's a number of steps you have to, to go through to, to have something that's protectable. Really what it boils down to is that, uh, especially in the U, the U.S. is unique in that it offers three different kinds of IP protection for plants. Um, almost every other country in the world has 
just one form of IP protection, and they're all part of the same international convention, almost all. And so um, in the U.S., you can get something called plant variety protection from the USDA. Um, you can get a plant patent from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, or you can get a utility patent for the for, on a variety for from the USPTO. And those three kinds of protection are very different in terms of their, their limits, what they do in terms of their cost. Sure, yeah. So the USDA is only available for uh, industrial hemp because it requires a seed deposit that has to be made legally with, with a government um, depository, basically. And so they won't accept anything that doesn't qualify as industrial hemp. So a whole lot of the cannabis industry is already out. Not a, that's not available to them. There are also a couple things about a USDA plant variety certificate that are not desirable. One is that it's not an infringement to breed with it. Another one is that it's not an infringement to save seed from one generation to the next for replanting. And so it's not always a bad thing, but it's not the panacea that some people think it is because they've heard of it. And it does have some limitations. A plant patent is the, the best way to describe a plant patent is it is like a copyright on a plant variety. Um, they plant patent the plant patent system was established in the 30s really because there were there was this boom in plant breeding and in creating new varieties that were then clonally propagated you know you'd make a new orange tree and then the only way to get to have the perfect oranges uh, that, that were consistent with that tree were to take cuttings of that tree you didn't do the seeds you did the cuttings and you'd do that with all kinds of trees and vines and and cut flowers as well and so there was a certain there was these things were not copyrightable there needed to be some kind of ip protection and so congress actually created the plant patent statute but it is only available for things that are that are asexually propagated so it's not available for things that are seed propagated um if you have a plant like cannabis that can be propagated both ways either with clones or with seeds then it'll protect clonal propagation but it's not infringed by seed propagation so you know if you have a plant that has such a rare combination of features that it can only ever be be cloned and that it's not even a good a, a good parent for breeding for some reason then a plant patent would be enough because then you just want to protect the clonal propagation but for most people even if they prefer to, to clone their plants um, they can't rule out that someone else would would get their plants and make seeds or that they would use them for breeding and so a plant patent is just a little too limited if you make direct copies, and that's why I call it like, it's like a copyright. If you make direct copies, that's an infringement. But if you do much else with it, it's not an infringement, which leaves you with the, you know, the final option of a utility patent. And utility patents can range from all kinds of things. But what I'm talking about here specifically is a utility patent on a given variety. And the way you establish that is you make a deposit either of seeds or other propagatable living tissue um, that says this is this this represents the variety that we're patenting, and you put a reference to that deposit right in claim one of the patent. But the thing about a utility patent is instead of just having a certain way of claiming it, like a like a plant patent, um, you can claim it any way that that is compatible. That this you can claim it any way you want as long as those claims qualify for patentability under the patent statute. So they have to be new. They can't be obvious. They have to be adequately described. But it gives you a lot of latitude about how you would claim it. Now, the, the other kind of utility patent that a lot of people are alarmed by, and that um, this is kind of what got OCP started, going back earlier in the conversation, 
our utility patents that are so broad that they cover more than one variety and that they might cover things that the breeder or that the owner of that patent didn't themselves breed. You know, some of those are very legitimate. If you really are the first to, to invent, say, a, a new technique or a new, even a new um, way of breeding plants that you can put into a lot of different genetic backgrounds and you really are the first, then you know, law says you're entitled to that patent. But some people, there have been some utility, some broad utility patents in the industry that have really caused a lot of concern and a lot of inefficiencies. But what I'm talking about in terms of the, um, the, the plant utility or the utility patent on a plant variety is limited to one specific variety. So it's got to be novel in a way. So it's not like we have a plant that's low in myrcene, you know, sedating factor, then you could just have a utility patent for all of that. It's something very specific. Is, is that? That's, that's exactly it. So if, if you think you're the first person to, to invent a plant that's low in myrcene, the rest of the community will say, no, you're not. Here, here are all these other plants that were low in myrcene. The patent examiner didn't know about them because they look for published, published publications to reject a patent application. And most of the activity in this industry until very recently was not published. It was the opposite of published. It was hidden. And so um, some broad patents have been granted, primarily at least, because the examiner didn't have the tools to give it the kind of rejection they would in other cases of someone's claim. If, if I had a biotech patent claim that um, reached into something that had been published 15 years ago or that had been in use for 100 years, I would never get it because it would be easy to document that it wasn't new. But it's a unique thing about the cannabis industry that almost everything that happened until the last few years was not documented in terms of in written, printed publications. It still happened, though. So if a breeder makes a submission, uh, we start by looking at the COA, the Certificate of Analysis, and you know Ethan will weigh in on that and say, this has this great potential. And then we, do, we have uh, received queries from people all over the world about the availability of this or that um, chemotype. And the chemotype is basically this, the type of plant that makes a certain chemical profile. Mm -hmm. And so um, we try to match those up and then check the legality of actually making those connections happen. Um, if, if it's not, then, you know, we'll come back to that when we can. Um, the, the, uh, the future is, is bright in terms of expanding markets and lowering regulatory burdens. But here in California, where things, we don't have any borders to cross. If a, if a plant variety originated in California and we have the opportunity to work with it in California, then, you know, we, we help to find, um, the right nursery partners and the right grow partners. And in many cases, the right distribution or manufacturing partners. And, you know, if we have to be kind of landlocked in a regulatory way in one place, there's no better place to be landlocked than the, the biggest cannabis market in, in the world right now, both for the, some of the best growing as well as the, the, the largest commercial diversity and demand. So we've got a financial model that, that tells us we could be an, a very, very profitable business just on California licensing and production. Um, and then if we take the thing I talked about kind of early in the process, which is scaling your business model by, be, by doing IP licensing into markets all over the world, the scalability of California production is it's mind-boggling. Yeah, it's huge. It's so huge. I really appreciate your time today. I have a few closing questions. Sure. First one's a really open one. What do you need from the universe right now? <laughs> what we need from the universe right now are some more investors that really get the vision and believe in it and are committed to it the way we are. Um, 
and that are ready to go. And I believe the universe is going to, we actually are already in conversations like with people like that. And I think the universe is going to deliver um, when the, uh, when a couple of big question marks hanging over all of us um, get resolved and time is going to make those things get resolved. Yeah. I definitely um, think so. The other thing that the universe that we would like the universe to deliver, which is really this immense, beautiful, wonderful um, community of plant breeders is um, if there are plant breeders that have really specialized in the, in the minor and rare cannabinoids, there's a lot of demand for that. And if someone, and we, we put out an occasional, we call it an RFG a request for genetics. And um, if, uh, if we put out an RFG and someone can step up, it, we put out RFGs when we know that there's a licensee out there that wants access to it. And we could make some of those deals happen very fast. And that's actually one of the exciting things is, if we can make a deal happen, that's revenue that's that's um, independent of even having um, investor money to work with. And we are definitely looking at uh, making some of those revenue events happen, um, regardless of the timing of the investment horizon. That's awesome. And I'm assuming quotabreedersbest.com yes. uh, to be able to, to inquire for those. Are there any cannabis or non-cannabis founders that you look up to that inspire you? The ones that inspire me aren't, aren't really the classic founders as much as the, the pioneers. And I look at pioneers like many of them aren't even well-known names, but many of the breeders that I've met that have been doing this there for, you know, 40 years. And, um, people like Mojave that grew up in a cannabis family. He, he's, I'm an eighth generation. I was born an eighth generation Mormon. I'm not Mormon anymore, but, um, but I still kind of carry that heritage with me. Mojave is um, a multi-generation cannabis family person. And I look at that and I think, wow, that that's, that's a, um, a depth of, of kind of pioneering and that, that's a different kind of founding than a company founder. Mm -hmm. Certainly the pioneering that, that both Rob and Ethan have done, um, these are people that I just admire tremendously. And I, I love the fact that we get to bring the, the, the pioneers of the breeder community and the pioneers of um, these, other, these other aspects of expertise together in our company. I, I love the fact that your, your team is the people that inspire you. I think that's a, one of the best answers I've ever gotten to that question. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, are there any other cannabis ideas that you just don't have business ideas that you just literally you see out there is such an obvious problem and you do not have time to start because you are now running your firm <laughs> and, and this company right now, but you're like, just send it off to the universe. Somebody, if you can do this, it, there's a definite need right here. Well, I, I actually don't have that, but I do have one other thing that we are doing as a company that I'm so excited about that it's, it's kind of, um, uh, second generation it's the second phase of, of the company but it's something that we are going to do and that is um we have uh proprietary technology for detecting minor cannabinoids at extremely low levels way way more sensitive than standard instrumentation and one of the things we're excited about is as we work with breeders they can either say yes or no to this but if a breeder gives us the opportunity to work with their plants um, one of the things is that they can opt into our new cannabinoid discovery program. And if they do opt into it, then they give us the opportunity to look for 
cannabinoids that are below conventional detection levels in their plants. And if we find one that is below that conventional detection level in one of their plants, that means their plant has the genetic capacity to make it. And then if they have opted in, if they don't opt in, we're not going to do this because we've, we've respect their right to, to either be in or out of this. And we're going to do this very transparently. But if, if the, if we do find one of those, it's some vanishingly small abundance that tells us though, that we could breed with that plant and select for higher and higher levels. And I believe that with this approach, we are going to be able to um, identify and with just conventional breeding approaches, uh, uh, create varieties that have high enough levels of these so far rare cannabinoids so that they'll be abundant enough that they can be studied and that we can figure out what they do. And as I've said, the future of medicine is in these other hundred cannabinoids that nobody's studied yet. We believe that with the, with the uh, cooperation of the breeders who have all these great exotic rare genetics, that that combined with our ability to detect cannabinoids at extremely low levels and then do conventional breeding will get us to the point that we can, that we can identify those cannabinoids. And the thing I'm so excited about is that, that the, um, the opportunities to have an immense impact on medicine and human benefit that revenues from that will flow back to the breeders that agree to work with us on this. So um, I think that puts another zero on the value of the company. And I think it, when we have a success like that, it will, um, it will change the life of whichever breeder or breeders are involved in that. That's amazing. That's amazing. There's marketable opportunity just for today very, for very that exciting. and also long-term IP for, for people who are so passionate about this for, for so long. And, and you guys are, uh, the bridge to being able to do that and, and solving a lot of problems that are out there and, and, and helping small breeders out there as well. So it's, it's a win for everybody. I love that you guys are, um, a B Corp and I think it's just such a fascinating story. Any parting words before we end this? I guess the, the one thing I, I like to always make sure people are clear about that I didn't get into the conversation today is that while we uh, pay for the IP protection and we get the IP protection, we're committed to the fact that the breeder will always own the IP. We are not trying to own their IP. We just want to be their licensee. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying that. And thank you for sharing your founder's journey today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a Lit Up media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Morgola, edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Morgola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. Links from today's episode are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and on LinkedIn at litupmedia. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.